All right, let's do this. Hi, this is Mark Griffin, the Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs, a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. We believe every software team can be more successful at delivering high levels of business value. Every episode, we're going to talk to one of our consultants exploring a recent engagement, and we describe the issues we were faced with and how we solved them. And we have a little fun along the way. So let's get to it. Let's do it. So this week uh, focuses on several recent engagements, and in this case, the theme today is going to be getting stuck. Um, making change happen in an getting organization. Unstuck. Yeah, getting unstuck too. Making change happen in an organization is a journey, and sometimes along the way, the progress seems to grind to a to a halt. And why is that? What causes it? Um, is why we're going to explore today, and what we're going to talk about is three different scenarios where we help clients get unstuck. Mm-hmm. And to bring some light to that, in the studio this week we have John Clifford. Good afternoon. So John is a senior fellow and he's the Agile Practices Lead here at Constructs. Um, John has some uh, pretty storied background. He got his first software development job at a startup when he was in college in in the early 80s. He ran a successful software company when he was 23. His career includes being around the early years of Microsoft, where he was one of the original developers on the Microsoft Project, uh, Windows and Mac team. Don't blame him for that. Uh, With more than three decades of of IT experience, John has developed and led software teams uh, across the spectrum of computing environments. Um, Here at Constructs, John focuses on software development, project management, product management, and team and organizational management practices with an emphasis on the lean and agile methodologies. He's a CSP, CSPO, and a CSP from CSM, sorry, from the Scrum Alliance. And he was actually invited to become one of the charter Kanban coaching professionals from the Lean Kanban University. So welcome, John, to the podcast. Welcome. So let's talk about this idea of getting stuck, um, and let's talk about it in higher level terms first. You and I talk a lot um, about the importance of clear process. Um, so let's tell a story in terms of a recent engagement where we were brought in to look at an organization, and we were told they were running Scrum, but when you got on the ground, something else was going on there. What about that? Well, sure. It's very common in this industry to run across people who are struggling with agile adoptions, and uh, are purportedly or have a baseline of trying to uh, implement Scrum and have it work for them. And we often go in these organizations that are struggling with their Scrum adoptions and find out that they're really not struggling with Scrum adoptions because they're really not running Scrum. They're doing an approximation. And again, we always tell people that the the road to to struggle and and, uh, purgatory is not paid with good intentions. It's often paid with faulty assumptions. And one of those faulty assumptions is, you know, we can just take a bit of this and a bit of that and it will be okay. So that's one of the big stumbling blocks that we find companies run into. They, they adopt part of a process, and it doesn't work because most of these frameworks are systems that are comprised of more than just the sum of their parts, right? There's more there. There's the interactions between the pieces of these systems. And when you start leaving pieces out, you start having problems. So people try and get, try and get to Scrum by running parts of it, and they don't actually get the full benefits of the full implementation. Sure. I, I think people want to have one foot on the old way, on the old deck, and one foot in the new canoe, so to speak. And then the canoe starts leaving the dock, and, and then they're doing the splits. And so this is one of those things that if you're going to do it, you have to do it. You have to kind of jump in and then figure out how to do it. But if you're going to make a decision to go ahead, make the decision and go ahead. So you often say that Scrum is a, is, is a forcing function. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, explain a little bit about that concept. Sure. So, Scrum is 
is an, a beautiful implementation of the dimming cycle in terms of managing projects at the team level. And what do I mean by that? The dimming cycle is simply a way of saying what W. Edwards Dimming brought to our industry. He was able to bring the scientific method into business management where you would actually form a hypothesis you know, based upon a belief and then you would experimentally test that belief to learn if your understanding was actually valid. And the outcome of the test would give you valuable feedback that we, you would use to inspect and then adapt to see what was working, to see what wasn't working, and then to make an educated change to, with the desire of getting a better outcome. And so Scrum does this with its process. The Scrum process is a dimming cycle, plan, do, check, act, in a nutshell. But when you start leaving pieces out, you start leaving pieces of the scientific method out, and then you start having problems. So, so you often said that the, there's this adage about the pain of change, mm-hmm. right? Where the, sure. Where people don't change until until that pain is high enough for them. Sure. Like they, they, we they can they all think about it in our, in our personal lives, right? We don't change unless the pain of change is less than the pain of not changing, right? Of doing the same. Look at people who have uh, who have uh, maybe they have health issues, maybe they are overweight. And when do people usually go on a diet when something happens that makes them realize that what they're doing is not working? They have to do something different. Maybe it's a scare about a heart issue, and that kind of you know puts a fear into people, and they make the change. Maybe people smoke, and we all know that smoking is not good for you, but people smoke because there's a short-term benefit to it. And then when the long-term pain starts becoming apparent, many people will quit smoking, which is a good thing. Uh, Same thing is true of organizations. We do what works for us today in the short term, even if it's not working for the organization in the long term. But eventually, the pain of not being successful will become so great that you have to do something. Often, when we come into companies that want to do these transformations or, or need our help, is because they've been going along and things have been bad, but there's a crisis that happens, a failed project that costs lots of money, or some other setback in business that makes people really sit back and think about what isn't working. So how, how do you turn the naysayers around when you, you find folks in an organization? It's, it's a delicate thing, right? You're going in... Maybe maybe an executive sponsor has brought you in, and maybe the people feel like someone's after them now. How do you actually, when you when you get on the ground and you start talking to those folks, what techniques have you learned from your own personal experiences about getting people and organizations to kind of change the way they feel about what they're doing and, and, and move to a better place? Well, a lot of resistance to change is caused by fear, right? We don't know what we don't know, and we fear we fear the uncertain. So people want the illusion of certainty. So depending on what level, this is where we often need leadership. And leadership is not saying, you know, a senior leader in the organization. It's saying the ability for somebody in that organization and often with us as well to convince people to buy in to the change that we want. And that is really the definition of leadership, right, is getting people who otherwise wouldn't agree to agree and buy in to implementing or following a a specific strategy or plan in order to accomplish a goal. That's leadership. And so often it takes some leadership to make these changes happen. But we also believe that people will do what works for them. And so part of this is not telling people about the process per se. Obviously, that's important. But first, making sure they understand what the benefits are to them for making these changes. So often we go into organizations that are struggling. There's a lot of crisis, which causes a lot of stress. Often there's a lot of overtime being put in. People are working very hard to try and get the problem solved. There often isn't a lot of coordination or cooperation because everybody's off on their own trying to make this thing work. And so it's having a bunch of people in the same boat but all rowing in a different direction with their best efforts. So a lot of this is slowing down, taking a deep breath, really making sure we all identify with and agree upon the goal. What are we actually trying to accomplish? And then once you understand why you're doing what you're doing, what do we need to get there to do to get there, and then how are we going to do it? 
And when you don't tell people what to do, but you explain it to them, and you, you, I like to use the Socratic method where I ask more questions than I give answers. People will often discover the answers on their own with good, with good mentoring and facilitation techniques. And then it's not our, my solution, it's our solution, which becomes their solution. And then people are enthusiastic to give it a try. And of course, we want to do things that work. We're pragmatists here. We're not idealists or zealots. When, when you come up with a good way of doing something and you share it with people and they try it and they see that it works, you start buying trust. And mm-hmm. when people can see that little things work that don't require a lot of trust, you start gaining that reservoir of trust with the teams and, and, the, and the groups that you're working with. So they're willing to give you more of the benefit of the doubt. They're willing to abandon their cynicism and be skeptical. And I always tell people, I love skepticism. Skepticism is that healthy you know, doubt. It, it's like, I'm willing to be convinced, but you must convince me. Cynicism, of course, is completely different. It's like, I'm not willing to give you any benefit of the doubt. I don't believe you. I'm not going to trust you. And it, you really have a hard time working with cynicism. So often the first challenge we have is to come in and turn cynicism into skepticism. And we do that by showing people that we understand what they're going through. You know, I'm either lucky or cursed, depending on how you look at it, because pretty much every mistake that your team is doing, either I've done or I've been on teams that have done it. And so I've learned those and painful survivors, lessons. survivors, so they like to see that. You're yeah. still here. And so we can show them that. You know, it's like, you know, when you're going through hell, the only choice is to keep going, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we want to convince people of, that, that, that we understand their pain because we've lived through it. We explain what we think they ought to consider trying and not just what they should do, but why they should do it and how they'll benefit from it. And these often make sense to people. And that's what breaks down the cynicism. And people then become willing skeptics. They're like, well, I'm not sure if that's going to work. But I'm willing to set aside my, my doubt and give it a real try. And then when it does work, they're like, wow, that actually worked. What else have you got for us? Right. And that's how you start right. the ball rolling. Right. I, mean, I think you mentioned something about, about teams that are already working really hard. And, and some of these organizations we visit, you know, people really are stressed out. And they're really pushing the envelope. And they're pushing lots of hours and nighttime and connected all, all day long. And the issue is not necessarily working harder. It's just working more efficiently more effectively what they're doing. Sure. I found that in many organizations, especially when people get frustrated, you know, the natural tendency, it's part of our little lizard brain as we start pointing the finger at other people. And that's not the problem. Most organizations, in fact, all of the organizations I've ever worked at or I've ever been working with, people are not the problem. Usually it's process or lack of process. We're not sure how to do our job or how to do it efficiently and effectively, as you said. So we put a lot more effort in than the work actually requires because we just don't know how to do it better. So I, I call that a capability gap. And again, that's something that can easily be rectified with some training and some coaching and some mentoring and then letting people do it in a safe space. You know, one of the things we've learned also is when people are struggling, there's also a lot of fear. People don't like to fail, right? Failing is painful. And most of the people who work in these companies, you, you don't get a job by, by not succeeding at most things you try. You were good in school. You obviously got your job. You're good at what you do as a technician. And then you don't understand why I'm doing everything that worked for me earlier and it's not working. It's a process issue. It's much harder to do things as a team or as an organization to do them as an individual. And most of our, our formal education college generally doesn't prepare you for this, right? We don't do most of our assignments as groups. We do them as individuals. And so we, we don't have to coordinate or align with anybody. We don't have to agree upon goals. We've got a, a clear assignment with clear grading criteria. And unfortunately, you know, business and our careers aren't like that. No one tells us how to get an A in business, right? Right. We got to figure Absolutely. it out. Absolutely. No, that's good. I mean, that's a good a good segue to the next stuck moment I wanted to talk about, and and that involves change adoption to a broader audience. Um, 
So let's say you run, you, we've run, uh, the organization has run a, a successful Scrum pilot, and it's been wildly successful, and the rest of the team looks at it and says, wow, we want to do what those guys are doing. This is really great. And then you start rolling out the process to, to the rest of the organization, but it doesn't go well. Um, so you pointed something you call, you've called for a long time the Agile test, right? And so let's use another client example to kind of talk a little bit about it and explain that. Um, is, is how do we respond to the customer question that comes along this, and they say, how do you know this is going to work for me? Sure. Well, that's part of that skepticism, right? right. The cynicism is this is not going to work for us. We're special, right? right? And we call that the snowflake syndrome. Everybody thinks that they're <laughs> different, that you know, even though this process may work at some places, it won't work here. And, of course, part of breaking down that wall of cynicism and going to skepticism is getting them to start asking rather, not that it won't work, but how could it work? So that's a good sign I look at it. Now let's talk about the Agile test. And that's a phrase I use. And it reminds people of the fact that the Agile and Lean approaches do not solve any of your problems. Okay, so I hope that's not news to anybody. They don't solve your problems. They expose your problems. And that is the beauty of them and the benefit of them. However... You know, there's no such thing as a silver bullet in this industry, right? So the problem is exposed, and now we have to do something about it. And so we have a choice to make, right? And there's that old saying, if you have to make a choice and you don't, you're making a choice. And the choice you're making is to stick with the status quo ante, right? To stick with what you're doing now. If what you're doing isn't working, doing more of it isn't going to work, right? You've got to do something different. And that's the whole basis of the dimming cycle, the scientific method. We, we come up with a hypothesis. We think, hey, this isn't working. If we did this, it would work, and this is what success would look like. And then we actually try it, and one of two things will happen. It will work or it won't. Now, if it works, we've learned something. But if it doesn't work, we've also learned something. And the learning is the true value of these approaches, right? So it's, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to make a process mistake, realize it didn't work, and back it out. It's not okay to not learn from your mistakes, right? That's the only true failure when you start going down the Agile road, is failing to learn from your mistakes, because you're going to make them. That also means we have to give people that, that ability to be able to fail safely, right? So we should give people reasonable permission to fail. And what we mean by that is if you try something and you truly thought it out and gave it a good effort and it was just wrong, it's okay. We back it out. We do something else. What we don't want to allow is what I call unreasonable failure, which is people who keep on making the same mistake and not learning from it, right? We won't tolerate lack of learning. You know, We may have to coach and mentor people on this, but stubbornness is something that people have to get over, right? And that's usually fear, you know, ego that's driven by fear. Right. So when we talk about the Agile test and failing, from my own experiences, I remember when I first went down this road, gosh, what, 15 years ago, I was a struggling feature team manager at a, at a startup here in the Seattle area. Now, I had been a very good manager. I was hired at this company to run the QA organization, and it was struggling. And we got it up and running in short order. We turned around from the, from the worst organiz- group in the organization to the, to the outstanding group in the organization. And part of my organization had a tools development group, and we were struggling with getting a tool out. So I was able to use traditional approaches to project management based upon my many years working on project and, and running organizations. Very successfully. And it's because I knew the scope. I knew it had to be done. I knew how the work needed to be done. I was a domain expert. Not a problem. And then I went over to the feature part of our business. I was actually running a couple development teams doing features for customers. And this was the Wild West. We had no idea what was right. And there was no way you could tell what was right up front. You had to try things out and see if people liked them or not to see if they would work. And so in that approach, how can you come up with a task-driven plan when you have no idea what you actually have to do? So that's why I went down the Agile road almost in desperation. And gosh, a funny thing happened. It actually worked. Those very short development cycles, getting feedback (laughs) and learning, inspecting, adapting, it actually worked. And 
that combined with the focus on quality able to, enabled us to uh, quadruple our productivity in about six months. So for the first time in that group's history, our my two large feature teams met their schedules, not on time, but early. We actually got two additional projects that had been hoped for but not planned for done in the same time frame. And when we hit the end of that six-month cycle, you know, we had been averaging – you know, this is a great thing about running the QA group in that organization. Each of the five feature teams had averaged over 100 defects per per month for the last several years. When we went down this new road and we focused on quality, when we got the end of our cycle after six months, we should have had 1,200 defects. We had two. It took us less than a week to fix yeah. it. it just, and, and this is what really helped us accelerate our productivity. We weren't doing a lot of rework. We weren't fighting ourselves. Right? We weren't having to clean up a mess as we went along. Or at the very end, we, clean, we kept track of it as we went along. And that really helped to reduce the chaos and entropy. So that's where you start learning your inspect and adopt. It's where I idea, saw the true right? utility of it. And right. it makes sense, but everybody thinks it's, it's more efficient to do things in batches. It's more efficient to do all the code and then do all the testing. Well, that's one of those conventional wisdom pieces which just simply isn't true, right? It's right. like, you know, if you cook, my dad had this habit of he always got the kitchen clean. He kept it clean as he cooked. So by the time the meal was ready, the kitchen was clean. And my mom, another hand, was also a good cook, but she would just not clean anything. And there was a huge pile of dishes and stuff to do at the end of the dinner. That's what I do. And I like my dad's approach because it's a lot less work if you think about it, right? Then you have kids that can clean the kitchen afterwards. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> then you have a problem with demotivated, skeptical, or cynical uh, kids, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe something like that. I don't know. But when we talk about getting people to look at these things and look at the Agile test, I would say that, that when people start down this road where they start adopting Scrum or other Agile approaches and it doesn't work, it's because they've exposed a problem and it's staring them in the face and they don't fix it for whatever reason. And that's called failing the test. And you can fail the test once or twice, but if failing the test is commonplace in your organization, if you keep on exposing problems, that's nothing is done about it. People, the people in the team see this. And they, they get cynical again. They think nothing's going to change right. because that's what you're showing them as a leader. And then the, the agile adoption fails. Well, the pain to change thing is also in there too, right? Where, where maybe the pain for the pilot was really high, but maybe the pain for some of the other participants in the organization isn't quite as high. Is it, do you do you think there's any kind any merit to this whole idea of like the five stages of adoption, where you might not grief, well, grief too, <laughs> grief too for sure. But like, man, you have the early adopters, and then you have the you know the mainstream, and then you have laggards kind of stuff in an organization. And and is there a, is there a role that management can play in bringing some of those late folks into the fray and say we we are being successful, and you're going to come along to the party? Well, sure. You know this is one of the things that we do teach in some more more advanced classes, and we often offer during the our overviews for leadership in terms of how to run a transition, and that's. Uh, basically how to handle the stages of change in an organization. So what the industry has learned, what we've learned about in management theory over the last 80 to 100 years, is that when you're in the early, very early parts of a change, leadership has to be compelling and directive. Because if you give people a choice, do you want to change? Most people say no, right. because what they're doing is working for them. Right. So you have to be like, well, we understand your concerns, but we're going to go down this road. Okay, and people would be very reluctant, very hesitant, because they're all worried about the impact it has on them and them personally. Like, how is this going to affect my job? I, don't, I know what to do with the old system. Even if it's not working for the organization, it's working for me because I can come in every day and be pretty calm, pretty collected. I just right. know what i got to do. Right. And now you've just, you know, you've moved my cheese, as the old saying goes, right? You've, you've rearranged, you know, the, the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. I don't know what's going on now. So, again, there's an example of – so we talk about being directive and compelling, but we also have to be encouraging, so if people are struggling, we don't dismiss it. We help them. We answer their questions, and we get over their problems. 
So we, we want to do that kind of thing with them. In the second stage, you know, this is like the tug model, forming, storming, norming, performing. In that forming stage, everybody's kind of very nervous and polite, bending over backwards, not sure. We need to be encouraging, but yet compelling and directive. In that second stage is where the storming starts. This is when people have realized they can't go back to the old way. Right. They've got to go with the new way. So exactly. now stop fighting the change and try to make the change happen. But often there's a lot of conflict or, or stress that is built up. And so you start seeing conflict between the team members as they argue each other. This is how we should do it. No, this is how we should do it. So there's conflict at the team level within the team. Now, that's a good sign because it shows you they've started to make that change from forming to storming. But it can, it can cause a lot of hard ill will and hard feelings. So this is where leadership has to step in and, and, and you know separate the people who are fighting and say, let's talk about this calmly, dispassionately. It's not, when people disagree, it's not because one person's evil or stupid. It's because they usually don't have the same shared understanding of what the problem actually is. So they have a different solution in mind. So I always tell people, if you want to get buy-in on the solution, get buy-in on the problem. So a good leader will get buy-in on the problem for the people. And then we go into the third step. And the third step basically is about norming. And again, we see this in all of our engagements. You know, people will, will first start challenging the idea we're going to run Scrum, but then they start arguing with each other, and then finally it gels. Okay. Yeah, so I think that's great. I think we have, that's we have many examples of this with our clients, and it's often. And what happens usually, like again, at one recent engagement we had, uh, we had a client that their first sprint, the team was had been arguing a little bit, but then we got them to calm down, and they were so excited because they got a bunch of things done. And then we go to the review, and nothing was actually fully done. Okay, now you think that would be discouraging, okay? But it wasn't. The team had stopped storming. And started norming. And norming is when they stop arguing with each other and start trying to see how they can understand the rules and work within the rules to see to succeed to the win. Beauty retrospectives. Yeah. Well, yeah. even before that, they realized that we, the one thing they could have done, and we did. Thank you for bringing it because we did talk about that first retrospective. We didn't get anything done, and we were so sure it was. Why was that? Well, there are a lot of little UI glitches, and the UI, the designer was in the same room with these guys. Why didn't we invite him over to look at what we thought was done before we said it was done? We're on day three of a 10-day sprint. Come look at this for two seconds and give us a feedback. You know, we know that we're supposed to use predefined uh, APIs or tools and widgets in our little toolbox for our UI, but people didn't use them because they got in a hurry. Why not? So we needed to add that to the definition of done. Use the toolbox widget, comply with the UI style guide that the designers have put out. And a few minor changes, and the team was so motivated, by the way, that they did all this, at, they stayed late that night after the sprint was over and got all these things to done, so the next day, they got the thumbs up on them. Now, they weren't done at that point in terms of scrum parlance, because we still want to look at the review, but they were finished doing any work on them. And they felt really good about that. And of course, the next sprint was very successful because they had incorporated what they learned. They got credit for all the things that weren't quite done in the first bit, and they did a bunch of additional things. And then they realized something. This stuff could actually work. Yeah, so they begin to pass the Agile test, if you will. Right? Yeah. So then they were got into the yeah. performing stage where they started increasing their productivity. So the beautiful thing about this is they saw how the inspecting that the feedback would give them value information, and they realized that this is just a big game we're making. And the game is getting this stuff done to the acceptable level of quality so we we'll never have to touch it again. And now, argue each other about this. Let's learn how to, how to adapt the rules and play within the rules like soccer to figure out how to play better and better and better. And this is a team that in three months increase their productivity by almost four times. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, we're going to hear more about this as inspect and adapt um, idea in future podcasts. We have some things coming up, I think, mm -hmm. that are going to focus on that. So but that's an example, a good example of passing the Agile test, right? Exactly. And then we talk about when we roll up the larger pilot teams and how it doesn't work. That's an example where we failed the Agile exactly. test. Exactly right. So i got one more thing we're going to cover today. Um, 
and it's clear you're passionate about all this, John. We could stay here and talk for hours, mm-hmm. but I think we got we got to kind of hone in on one more thing. If I, I didn't love this, I wouldn't do it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, that's why you've been doing it for years. So another one I think that comes up frequently that we have seen in, in countless number of companies we work with, and this is probably a little bit further into the weeds than we've been with the, the other two issues here, and that really has to do with um, getting better, I think, as teams progress and they begin to get performance, as you mentioned, through the storming, normally performing kind of thing. You, you get better at the, at the game, but you, know, you start humming along, and then maybe, maybe you hit like a speed bump without a helmet. And, and there's a sticking point you come up with, right? You, something happens and, and you, can you point at something that you run into time and time again? Like you mentioned before, things like effective backlogs and, and the issues people have with, with making an effective backlog item. So some of one of the common failure modes, as you mentioned, which is, and it ties into the fact of being successful with sprints, right? So in Scrum, we want to set a sprint goal. We'd like to, we want to accomplish X number of items and, and implement them to the point of being done to the point where we could deliver them to the customer without having to touch them again at the end of each sprint. That's one of our big objectives in, in Scrum. In fact, that that sprint goal is really the measure that we evaluate ourselves by, right? So deliverables. Yes. Right. So one of the problems you often run into is people have a hard time hitting that sprint goal. They, have, they bring a bunch of items into their sprint backlog, and they can't get those done. And yet they thought they could. Or, and I'll step back, did they really think they could? And usually this is caused by chunkiness in their back. What do I mean? Some items are really, really tiny. Some items are really, really big. One of the one of the key modes we initially see, and this is a result of what we call cognitive mapping. People learn something new and then try to put it in the context of something they already know. So if I have spent my career doing activity or task-based planning, you know, identifying what people do rather than what they create, okay, we can start having lots of problems. So Scrum is about deliverables, as you mentioned, not about activities. Mm-hmm. The team owns the how. The team owns the tasks that will implement the deliverable, the backlog item. But a lot of teams don't get that paradigm shift, and so they bring a bunch of tasks, things that individuals would work on in a sprint. And of course, you know, those usually tasks are estimated in terms of hours, right, staff hours, but usually somebody senior will estimate these tasks, but the junior guy has to do them. It's like having Hussein Bolt, an Olympic sprinter, estimate how long it would take him to run 100 meters, and then a guy like me, who, who can't really run well with two knee surgeries, have to go out and run them. Uber. Uber, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's where technology can increase velocity, right? Exactly. So we often work with teams, and, and, we, and one of the things we work on is how to properly size their backlog items, because this is a huge impediment. It's a problem that people don't know how to solve. And so we give them a couple rules of thumb. One rule of thumb is a backlog item, again, should be sized so that more than one person on your team can work on it simultaneously, and yet it can be readily implemented within the confines of a single sprint by less than the full team. So I call that the Goldilocks rule. Not too big, not, not too, too small, small just right. Okay, so if, if you find that most of your backlog items are something that one person owns, remember another rule. People, it, team members don't own backlog items, teams own backlog items. Team members own and are accountable for, for accomplishing the tasks that implement those items. So for instance, a tool like Jira has subtask, uh, Visual Studio or Azure DevOps, whatever version you're using, calls it a task under a work item, such as a story or a backlog item. Bring the backlog items into your sprint backlog and then decompose those into tasks during the sprint that individual team members will grab. So that keeping that rule of size in mind, not too big, not too small, just right, it, a good backlog item is a deliverable. It's not something that we do. It's something that we implement that the user can actually directly uh, utilize or get an advantage from. 
It makes total sense. I mean, by having those variable sized um, elements in your in your sprint backlog, you can you certainly can expect a lot of pressure on the sprint to exceed the bounds to push beyond the bounds of the of the of the two week sprint, for example. Or people want to have longer sprints because their items are big, and so so if you if you're not able to get your sprint goal done in two weeks, people want to go to a three week sprint or a four week sprint. That is not addressing the problem. That is working around the problem. Right. If you if your velocity is very high in one sprint and lower non-existent in other sprints, it's up and down, up and down. That's another sign of improperly sized items. And remember that that irregular sizes is a form of waste because it 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 makes flow vary, the rate of productivity vary. Right. So the, the secret is don't make your sprints longer if you can accomplish your goal. Commit to less and make sure your items are properly sized. So I'll give you an example from a customer we had very recently with this. This is a team I worked with in Europe. That was having a problem, hitting his sprint goals, often didn't do it, uh, didn't know why. And we looked at their items and realized some of these items are just like three or four hour tasks that one person would be doing. And there's really no deliverable attached to it. Other stuff was multiple sprint, what we would call epics in this industry. And remember that we use the term epic and we use the term story. And these are attributes for backlog items. An epic is simply a size backlog item. Right? Yeah, they're size attributes. Right. An epic is simply a backlog item that cannot be readily done in less than a full sprint by less than a full team. And therefore, a story is the opposite. It can be done readily and less than a full sprint by less than a full team. So these aren't attributes of value, they're attributes of effort or size, okay, of the magnitude of the work. So keep that in mind, we want stories in our backlog, not epics. In fact, we, I discourage the use of the term epic because it's too generic. I like using features, capabilities, or enhancements as a way of classifying these large pieces of work that we will decompose into sprint-sized stories. Do teams actually struggle with the idea of delivery versus deployment as well? Well, that's another good point because people aren't sure how to break these things up, right? How do we do the division? Because if I deliver this piece, let's say I'm doing a text editor, all I can do today is I've created, you know, I, I need to be able to open a file, edit a file, save a file, etc. right? So how do I address this issue? Well, we tell people, you're right, a text editor has no value if you can't do all those things. But I can deliver the ability to open a file, which might just simply be the UI to bring up a menu with file open, maybe use the operating system boxes like under Windows, the Windows Common File Dialogs, select a file, and then return the file handle. Now that itself has value, but it doesn't have independent value. That by itself is not useful to, an, to a customer, right? What can you do if all you can do is get a file handle? However, it is an increment of value towards a full text editor. So I want to be able to deliver that story as a user. I want to be able to open a file so I can work on it, mm -hmm. that story within a sprint. Now, delivery is not deployment. Deployment is delivering value to a customer. Okay. So when we say delivery, I should never have to go back and touch the code I wrote to give me that file handle. It works. I can Now I can, my next story might be building a, a, a window that has the contents of the file in it. And the next story might be let me edit the text. And the next story might let me save that. And the next story might be let me print it. And when all those things are done together, now I have a text editor. So we want to deliver value, but eventually we've accumulated enough value in the form of what the Scrum Guide calls a product increment that there is value in deploying it to a customer. So deployment to the customer is a business decision. We deploy when the value of deployment exceeds the cost or the effort of deployment both to ourselves and to the customer. So it may not cost us very much to deploy the ability just to get a file handle out to the customer, but there's no value to the customer in taking that, is there? Not really. So we, we aggregate uh, increments into our product. The product increment grows sprint over sprint as we add new increments to it. And eventually there's sufficient value to deploy to a customer. So deploying is a business decision. The Scrum team has an obligation to deliver done value. Done meaning we never have to touch it again. That's a great, that's a great point. It's almost like you're converging on 
the idea of committing to something to the business. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the business is actually looking for that idea that you've called together enough of these things in a delivery context that now something can be ruled out. And it's a decision that they can or cannot do. They maybe say they yeah. don't, don't need it right now. Some right? markets basically cannot take things quickly. Like I'll give you a contrasting example, Amazon. Amazon deploys hundreds of times a day to the customer because what is the cost of deployment to me as a customer of Amazon? I hit the refresh button on my browser and exactly. I've got the latest exactly. version, right? Exactly. Now we work with companies that do flight control software for airliners or medical device companies where they might use a device to do to assist in neurosurgery. Those companies in those regulated industries cannot take an update every day because they have to go through their own internal validation process to make sure they're not going to kill somebody with it. Exactly. Quality is very important. So the cost of them accepting a deployment is very high. So they don't want deployments very much. I'll go back again and use another example from the early Microsoft Windows days. When Windows 3.0 shipped, it was on 37 floppies, okay, which cost a dollar a piece, plus the packaging and shipping. So it was about $40 for Microsoft to update one user with the update of Windows. I don't think there was maybe but one update for three or four years because of that reason. Today, what does it cost Microsoft to update Windows to its customers? Microsoft does these rolling updates on a monthly basis, but as a user, I get an alert, I hit the OK button, I get an updated version of Windows on my machine, right? So it costs me nothing to take an update. Microsoft, I think, batches them up on a monthly basis because it costs them something to prepare this and package it, and that's often enough for them. But of course, if there's a hot fix or security problem, Boom, Boom, it's it's out there. there. And they have the ability to do that. Yes, well, they didn't have it. So what Microsoft has done is they've reduced the cost of deployment to make it feasible financially and viable financially to do updates more frequently. So if your customers want more frequent updates, you've got to reduce your cost of deployment. Or you've got to understand why their cost is so high and do something about that, right? So working on your backlog is a good idea because all this stuff will all this stuff rolls it up. It all ties in together. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. all turtles all the way down, right? Absolutely. As they say. So thank you, John. I think we're going to call it a day there. We got a lot of good information from you. Thanks for this great discussion. I think you have a tremendous amount of insights. You can, like I said, I think we could hit the play button. We can go for two hours sure. without much of a trouble here. So You know, my customers often say they love my pithy comments. I have a saying for everything. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? No, absolutely. You're, you're the walking uh, Wikipedia there in some you go. respects. So I think that's all the time we have this week from these topics. Be sure to tune in next time for another edition of the Contracts Podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Cody Madison has been our uh, engineer in training. Devin Musgrave is our producer, so have a great next sprint. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you found us. If you have comments or would like to talk to one of our practitioners, or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you.